0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to She Said, She Said, the only radio show of rock and roll comparisons and contrasts. I am your co-host, the culinary chef, Lena Stagg, the author of the Recipe Records cookbook series, a series of four great rock-inspired recipes, trivia, band histories, and magnificent song lists to play while you are Cooking it up in your kitchen. Check out all of those books on my website, LenaStag.com, and while you're there, sign up for my free newsletter and blog. Hey guys, I am Lena's trusty sidekick,
2: as always, Jude Sutherland Kessler, the author of the John Lennon series, and. Most of you, if you're tuning in, know about the John Lennon series, but if you don't, it is the only historical narrative series which tells in very carefully researched, documented methodology the story of John's life, and therefore, if you tell John's life, you tell the lives of his mates, the Beatles, in what is proposed to be a nine-volume series. It's looking more like ten volumes now, but we'll see how it goes down the road. The first Four books are already out in print and an ebook for you to enjoy, taking you from John's birth up to the beginning of 1965. And my webmaster says that once I finish a book, I stand up and shout, yay, and sit right back down and start the next one. So, yep, I am working away on volume five, which will include the making of their second film, Help, John's second book, A Spaniard in the Works, And the Beatles' 1965 World Tour, North American Tour, UK Tour, sounds like a repeat of 64, doesn't it? And it is, as well as the making of help for the soundtrack, film soundtrack, and Rubber Soul. So tune in to johnlennonseries.com, and just as Lena suggested... Sign up for my free monthly newsletter and blog. I uh, write the blog for the Fest for Beatles fans, so that's included each month. And please, please, please me and get one of the very last copies of Volume 4 in the John Lennon series. Should have known better. We have about 40 copies left, so get them before they are gone.
1: Wow, that is crazy. We have a lot going on, but nothing is more exciting than the guests that we have with us today to continue our examination of the newly remastered White Album and Eshirt demos released on 9 November of last year. We have taken an in-depth look at the Enhanced White Album with Scott Fryman of Deconstructing the Beatles, and then a few weeks ago, Jude and I discussed four of the unique Esher demos, and today in our third show of this series, we're going to look at four more of the Esher demos that were recorded uh, on George Harrison's four-track Ampex prior to going into the studio.
2: And I tell you what, we um, cannot think of anybody that would know more about these Esher Demos and and who could walk us through that very unique experience more than our respected guest today. He's not only a dear friend of ours, but he is the noted author of many, many books on the 1960s and the Beatles, including some truly – land. all of his books are great – but. I would say that one of his books is a truly landmark work that everyone needs to sign on a dotted line and read if you're going to call yourself a Beatles fan. And it is the remarkable book, Revolver How the Beatles Reimagined Rock and Roll. Uh, I think it ranks up there with any of the great, great, great Beatle books. I have to admit I never liked Revolver I never saw the sense or the use in it to me it was a lot of gobbledygook and then I listened I read this book by our guest today and completely revamped and reshaped my opinion of Revolver it is a it is a great work so you know, read and study Revolver, how the Beatles reimagined rock and roll, and maybe it will do for you what it did for me and make it into one of my very favorite Beatles LPs.
1: I completely concur, Jude. I was, um, you know, back before I had written my Beatles cookbook, I was uh, kind of listening to Revolver and kind of got into um, just really connected with it and did some looking online and saw that book. And I thought, "Who? I think I might like that book. And boy, did I ever. And it's really been uh, fantastic to be able to uh, get to know the author and um, have him as a, an honored guest on our show. He gives the same in-depth discerning treatment to the Beatles' individual careers and creations in his book Solo in the 70s. He takes you through the various LPs, films, and other projects that John, Paul, George, and Ringo tackled in those years post-Beatles. So if that's an area that you're really not familiar with, then you might want to give this book a serious read as well. Of course, his first two books, Beatles FAQ and Beatles FAQ 2.0, are true classics for devoted fans. They are must-haves. So we are really excited to have with us today not only a respected Beatles expert, but also someone who definitely qualifies as a hashtag eye candy guest, since he is mm-hmm. innovative, insightful, and Interesting on the internet. Please welcome our longtime friend, excuse me, Robert Rodriguez. Are you there, Robert? Thank you so
3: much, ladies. I am there. Thank you so much. It is my honor and privilege to be talking with you guys today. It's funny how, because we operate in the same circles and we do the same events, and it's like it's so great to see each other when we do, but the downside of that is we hardly get much time to hang out unless we have a meal together because we're busy right. doing our thing in all different rooms wherever we're at. But it, <laughs> right. it's, it's cool whenever we can connect and talk and just, you know you know, chew the fat about the Beatles or anything else because you guys are so unbelievably knowledgeable. It's just, you never know. You know, we just sit down and start talking about something and spiral off on something that may have nothing to do with the Beatles, but you guys, you know, lead the conversation and we can always, you know, just, you know, have the same sort of touching points of our our backgrounds and our rock and roll lore and history that we're steeped in. So it's always fun lying with you guys.
2: Thank you so much. We consider Absolutely. it a great honor. and know you are a busy, busy man, but we are thrilled to have
3: you here. Absolutely. All time for you guys. Absolutely. And, uh, I'm grateful you asked.
1: Well, okay, Robert. That you asked I'm sure about the that... Easter tapes because oh. Go ahead. Go ahead, Robert.
3: I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, just that when we were at Monmouth back in November for the 50th of this, I was actually asked to do something on the Esher Tapes, and I made that into a show, number 150 of my podcast. I wasn't really sure how to approach it, but what I did was sort of a prehistory sort of contexting the making of the Esher demos at George's house because I think a lot of people, if you're a serious Beatle fan, you may know a bit about that that they exist, first of all, which is more than Giles Martin knew when he started working on the uh, White Album project, but also just that... um, They were sort of the rough drafts coming out of Rishikesh that they sketched out all these songs they'd created. But really it is interesting how that process of them getting together, even on songs that ultimately would be shaped up as sort of individual performances – they got together as a group, which is sort of counter to the narrative everybody hears about the White Album being such a divisive project in the start of their solo careers. It really wasn't. If anything, it was sort of a throwback to what they did in the spring of 1960, where they got together at Paul's house at 4th and Road and sat around a tape recorder and put down their music to hear what they sounded like. It's almost that same sort of communal bonding through music feel, which I think is pretty key to understanding the sessions that followed.
2: Yeah, yeah. It it definitely is. And um we I know that we were so sorry we missed your program at Monmouth because I mean I have heard we heard such such great, great reviews, haven't we, Lena?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And um we're really thrilled to get a chance to do a bit of a do over today and um share your knowledge about those wonderful Unplugged songs that were um, presented by the Beatles that day in late May of 1968, as you mentioned, at George's home in Kin And so we uh, asked you to select four songs and uh, share your insight on those. And if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you to begin with my favorite a number by George, so that would, of course, make it one of my favorites. Uh, mm-hmm. Sour Milk C. Yeah, so, a would great like song. i go to play a little one, clip of that. The one that, that? got away.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Okay, I'll go ahead and play a little clip of that, Robert, and then we will um, chat about it. Mm.
0: Get the breaks like some of us do Better work it out where you've gone wrong.
1: track what what's your opinion robert
3: i think that is the one that got away it is one that it's very interesting when you look at george's attitude toward his own work and you listen to some of the session tapes or you talk to some of the people that were around and you take a song like something which is almost his signature song in the beatles it's such a standard such a money spinner such a a song that people recognizing oh i guess he is on the same level of artistry as Lennon McCartney. And when you listen to some of his comments when that song first started to bubble up in 68 during the White Album sessions, and then he brings it up at Twickenham during the Let It Be sessions in early 69, he wasn't even necessarily thinking of that as a Beatles song at all, and everybody mm-hmm. was just sort of like blown away by it, and he's like, no, I was thinking of giving it to Joe Conker, I was thinking of giving it to Ray Charles, that's sort of what I had in mind when I was writing it, and it's mm-hmm. like, As an outsider, you could say, well, clearly you're not the best judge of your own material. But (laughs) what it really speaks to is George's – from this distance, as we're able to judge as outsiders without ever having known him personally, is how self-deprecating, how self-effacing he was, and how unbelievably generous he was with his talents, that something on that level he was willing to give to somebody else so that they could shine with it. And I think when it comes to Sour Milk Sea, here it is, written in Rishikesh, this great encapsulation of transcendental meditation. It's practically a three-minute advertisement for it, which would have delighted the Maharishi if they were still on connected terms after that (laughs) visit. But uh, I think that really the way George saw it was, here was a song that he really thought would launch Jackie Lomax, who he was great mates with going back to Liverpool and The Undertakers and the Hamburg-Liverpool circuit. And he really wanted him to have this great launch of his career. So he brings in this all-star cast to back him on it when they record at the studio. You know, three Beatles plus um, Nicky Hopkins and Eric Clapton. I mean, how can you better that for a debut record? And he just put his heart and soul into it. And I really think that he saw Jackie as the one who could do the song justice. Because when you hear the Jackie treatment of it, as opposed to the Esher demo, it is an all-out, you know, almost sort of screaming rocker. It's you know, pretty heavy sounding backing, and he's got that great piercing vocal. That really wasn't George's strong suit. And if he was envisioning that kind of treatment, then you could see where he would defer to somebody like a Jackie. You know, and if, if there was no Jackie, he might have given it to Paul to sing because Paul could have given it that same sort of treatment that George really didn't have the chops for, unless he went a different route. And what I think of is when they cut all 102 takes of not guilty during the white album sessions, but when it eventually emerged to the public in 1979, that acoustic jazzy version on on um, the self-titled album, it's mm-hmm. a totally different treatment. And if George had someday revisited Sour Milk Sea and did it through a diff- different light completely, sort of this laid back song, then he could have sang it more akin to his performance in the demo. So really, I think there's some sound reasoning behind what he did with it, but you know, if us is outside, it's like, man, wouldn't that have been great on the White Album?
2: Yeah,
1: we may have lost Lena. Absolutely. Oh, there she is. Oh, I'm still here. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, I I think that you answered my question. So, um, I okay. I had just um, have heard a lot of Beatles people express real regret that George gave that song to Jackie Lomax. Um, Many think that George, you know, could have taken it and made it it made it one of his strongest offerings on the White Album. Um, mm-hmm. Do you agree?
3: I, I think if the Beatles had taken it on, it would have probably had a different flavor to it because I think in his head, if you see it through his eyes that he was envisioning it as a heavy sort of R&B, heavy vocal, that he probably thought in his own mind, being the kind of guy he was, well... I can't really do this justice, but Jackie can. And if he had envisioned a different way as more of an acoustic or laid back or something more in the mold of a long, 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 then he would have been mm-hmm. absolutely suited to deliberate in that, in that form because that would have suited his own vocal ability. But uh, right. I think he had a certain vision for it, and that's why he handed it over.
2: Yeah. Well, Robert, one of the songs that we agreed together to discuss this afternoon is one that is really honestly very hard for me to listen to even a short clip. And it's one that I feel was most misunderstood by Beatles critics for a long time. And now that Mm -hmm. we've got more thorough biographical information at our fingertips, we know that John Lennon was not just – writing your blues as a parody of a blues song or a writing exercise or whatever. But he picked that genre purposely to express what he was going through in the spring and summer of 1968, terribly dark, but powerful song. Take us through it. If you don't mind.
3: Yes. Your blues. That is a song that I think is so revealing. And I think that sometimes when John was being so painfully honest about his feelings, He was a little self-conscious about it, and he wanted to sort of deflect or, you know, deflate some of the pomposity, as it were, just as with Tomorrow Never Knows. You know, that was a song that was a very heavy statement at the time in 1966 for Revolver. So he hid behind a Ringoism to take some of the the heaviness and pretension away from it that he thought he might be accused of. So you look at your blues. Now, the Beatles, being Englishmen and being such astute students of American music, were as familiar and enamored with the blues, the American blues music, as anybody in England. And, of course, they didn't take that career path where other people did, your Claptons, your Jeff Becks, your Jimmy Pages, your uh, Peter Greens. And it was sort of coming into a big fruition, 67, 68, the English blues scene. So, you could see the Beatles being very self conscious and having a great deal of trepidation. Do we really want to encroach on cream territory or John Mayall at this point? Because, you know, we're going to come off as not being quite on the same level as that. So, you have to take a different tack. And so, what John does is he crafts this set of lyrics which are very much expressing his inner life. Now, it's it sort of this paradox that when they're away in Rishikesh, where it's supposed to be all meditation and connecting with the universe and finding the true meaning and all this stuff that he's feeling alternately like he's going crazy or he's feeling suicidal. He's going through this. It's funny in the Easter demo of I'm so tired, I wonder if I should get up and go to the funny farm. You know, he's just sort of reliving that mindset. And it's a very real thing that he said, you know, to his dying day. I'm not kidding. So here you have your blues, you know, feel so suicidal, although he hadn't quite reached that point when he cut the studio version of it with the Beatles, so feel so insecure is what he sings in that same mm-hmm. verse there. And mm-hmm. maybe it didn't scan as well, maybe in the blues idiom it wasn't quite dramatic enough because of course blues is very dramatic, you know, very love mm-hmm. and death and all that sort of thing. So he's gotta really raise his game a bit. But the funny thing is when you've got all these Englishmen singing a lot of American composed blues tunes where they're obviously trying to channel their idols and come up with something that really resonates with them. And Clapton was a master of that. You know, the Beatles aren't going to do that. They're going to sing something that's directly personal, self-composed. And here is where you have the real sense that belies John's, oh, it's me in a backing band, Paul in a backing band, George in a backing band. These guys are so fully on board with what he's singing there. I mean, you listen to just the drama of Ringo's drumming on that track, Paul's big, powerful supporting bass. And then you've got George's lead. You know, you would think that somebody like him, best mates with Eric Clapton, who's made his whole living being this great blues player, this blinding you know, lead musician, and George is going to encroach on his territory and try to keep up. Instead, yeah. he expresses his own artistry, which is playing lead like a human voice. And what he is expressing in purely audio terms is the agony of what John is saying with words. It is otherworldly. It is unbelievable how he is sort of casting what he plays on guitar to fit the context of the song. Everybody's game is so raised, and they played it as a band. I mean, that is, you want to point to something that shows how together these guys were as musicians in the summer of 68. Look no further. You want
2: us to play a clip of that? I would. Let's do it.
3: All right.
0: Here we go. You know the reason why.
2: You know, I mean, to me, the most telling line in the entire song is even hate my rock and roll. Because as we all know, ever since Uncle George's death in when John was 14 and a half, he is relying on rock and roll to save him. That is the thing that's going to keep him from giving up. And when you hate your rock and roll, you've come to a really dark, dark, dark place. It's it's such a hard song to listen to. But let's move on to another Lennon song that really is one of the great classics on the white, Happiness is a Warm Gun. So this is John offering changes and letting the song mature quite a lot from the Esher version to the white album. So tell us about that, that path, Robert.
3: Well, it's very interesting, the Esher demo. So you have this at the May, at end of May 1968 where it's very much a work in progress as compared to a lot of the other stuff they taped at George's house. Your blues is pretty fully formed with a few lyrical changes here and there. And mm-hmm. um, "Happiness is a Warm Gun is it's it, – what is interesting to me, and it's always been interesting since the first time I heard this song, is that it's sort of this little mini suite where it's got different discrete sections that are stitched together as a seamless whole. And that's really mm-hmm. sort of a hallmark of Paul's work. You know, when you look at a song like an Uncle Albert yeah. – or some of the other yeah. things that he did where he, all these distinct little sections and they stitched together. Here's John sort of dipping his toe into that sort of thing. And again, this is the power and the beauty of collaboration on the finished project product where you've got all of them rising to the occasion. And what is interesting to me is finding out later that that first part, she's not a girl who misses much that he basically co-wrote that with Derek Taylor. He sat there and they were <laughs> tossing out lines and somebody's writing them down. So that is the beauty and the power of collaboration from John's brainchild of coming up with those, those distinct little sections. Um, here you've got, as you can sort of see in a lot of the songs he contributes to the white album, you know, there's sort of oblique or direct references to Yoko here. It's a lot more direct Yoko. Oh no, oh no. Oh no. Oh yes. Right.
2: Right. <laughs>
3: yeah. As well as a little more darkly, the heroin references, I need a fix, you know, um, that that sort of stuff that Paul would say in retrospect, well, we didn't realize, you know, what he was getting into at the time and this road he was going down. So, again, to speak to the darkness that you've referenced that he was going through in 1968, here is an expression of it. It's not quite the suicidal, it's just sort of more matter-of-fact in a way that would be fully expressed in cold turkey a year later, but here it is. And what I always found sort of fascinating about this whole song is happiness is a warm gun. The fact that everybody has sworn by, oh, that was an issue of American Rifleman that they had in the studio that they caught that expression from because it was on the front cover. And I own the magazine, so I know it's true. But they said that George Martin owned it? Really? (laughs) That that, never made sense to me. Really,
2: it's very, very odd, very odd. And I love your evaluation of it as a mini-suite, which is exactly what it is. It is very pre-Uncle Albert for John, you know. I love it. So let's listen to it. Happiness is a warm gun.
0: I need a fix because I'm going down Back to the bits that I left uptown I need a fix that I'm going down.
1: Mother Superior jumped the gun. Mother
0: Superior jumped the gun. Yo, go, oh no, oh no. Yo, go.
2: it was Yoko oh no oh no and who celebrated her 86th birthday yesterday so
3: that's
2: there right. we have it
3: that's right well Robert we finally their, we come the, to the,
2: go ahead go I, ahead
3: as I said the mother reference the mother superior in yep. the whole tying Yoko to mother is this mother figure to him diving into his own psychology I hear I think you see the start of it
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. oh yeah no doubt about it. And, you know, he's one of the early BBC songs. I think it's You Really Got a Hold on Me. He says, You Really Got a Hold on Me, Mother, you know. So you <laughs> now we begin to tie that to Yoko. She is now Yeah, her, there's a thread you know? there. So, there is a thread. Okay, so we come to Sir Paul. And let me say, for those of you who are listening live, and I know some of you are, Um, we're going to go off-air in three minutes, but the entire show will be on the archives. So don't miss out on the end. Just wait a few minutes, and the whole show will be available for you in the archive version, which we will be making available to you this afternoon. So we come to Sir Paul, and his Easter offerings aren't as exciting as those that we've been, you know, enjoying and discovering over the last six months from George and from John simply because Paul pretty much comes to Ken Fonz with his songs White Album Ready. They're ready to record. He's already played and recorded the various instruments. He's developed the songs completely. So you're not going to hear as many surprises. But is that true with Blackbird, Robert?
3: Yeah, it's interesting with that one because it was worked out by himself on acoustic guitar, and that was how it emerged on the White Album. But there was along the way, between Demo and Esher, which sounds pretty close to the final version on the White Album, when you listen to some of the studio chatter and run throughs, it was considered as a possible band arrangement, or at least augmenting it with piano, with second guitar, with brass, all these ideas were floated. And it was George Martin that was hugely influential in shaping the final arrangement, if the mm-hmm. session tapes are anything to go by, yeah, including that breakdown in the middle and then where it starts up again. Paul had a very different idea for that. So the Deescher demo is sort of the sound of him thinking out loud. It's very repetitious compared to the final version. Mm-hmm. But um, it's, I, I give Paul kudos for his mastery of simplicity here. I mean, mm-hmm. he has said through the years, and the story with every telling seems to get more and more embellished as far as his direct connecting it to the civil rights movement and i don't see that as him being disingenuous at all because we of course have the the session tape with donovan taped months after the record came out where he says that explicitly and the timing works out as well because the song was written it was finished off in scotland like the week martin luther king was killed so his Mm -hmm. talking about it being a reaction to what he was seeing in the news about the riots in america that that very much it dovetails so i don't doubt him for a minute but there's the poetry of it. You know, if, if he didn't know that association that he had in his own head, it's still a beautiful song. And it really sort of the start of his sort of aviary fixation that would manifest itself in Bluebird and Jenny Wren and you know, yeah. references through the years.
2: I love that. I hadn't thought about that, his aviary <laughs> fixation. Well, I'm glad to hear that about the genuine nature of it because really and truly I thought, I don't remember hearing a Thing about this when the song came out, but as the theme has become more popular. But no, you're saying mm-hmm. from the very beginning that's how he intended it. So interesting, very yeah.
3: interesting. Yeah,
2: you know. I mean, let's he definitely rewrites
3: it. his own history a lot, but in this case, I think he's just adding more detail. But the the, the actual seed is there.
2: That makes me feel better. I was like, oh man, this wasn't
1: true, but yay, <laughs> that's good. All right, here it is, Blackbird. Well, let's let's uh, get fixated on our. Birds here. <laughs>
2: matter what the meaning is, it is a beautiful, gorgeous song, and to be able to put the civil rights emphasis in with it only enhances it. So that is
0: – I love it.
2: You know, well, Robert, uh, Lane and I say every single day we wish I, we could clone ourselves. We'd have one person that would go to work and do the house and do the yard, and the other person could research. <laughs> well, one – of the things that I most regret is that we couldn't do both the walking tour at the White Album Conference at Monmouth University and see all those Bruce Springsteen sites. It was great, just really a great tour. But also it meant that Mm -hmm. we missed your great show, which we wanted to hear very, very much about Esher that kicked off. It was the, the kickoff speech for the White Album Conference. And I know a lot of people who didn't get to go would like to hear it. So tell them one more time where they can hear that Esher Talk, and also how they can follow you on social media and keep up with your podcast, because you have a wonderful podcast of your own called Something About the Beatles. So tell us how we can get in on all of that.
3: Right. Well, thank you very much for that. The Esher Talk was recorded by Ben Rowling, and we posted it as Sappy, that's Something About the Beatles, Episode 150, and you can find all the shows there, going back four years, at um, on Twitter at SappyShow. That's the uh, handle for it on Twitter. Of course, on Facebook, as we all are. And um, that's really how to follow that sort of thing. I also have Fab Four FAQ 2.0 on Facebook, which has daily postings on, on this day in history and rock through 1980. But uh, that's generally what i got going. I've got two books in the works. Someday we will hear about them, you know, if I can call them myself and get them done in my own lifetime. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll try to stay healthy.
1: Very nice. <laughs> Very nice. Now, can can people find your books at Amazon?
3: Oh, yes, yes. Uh, Everything is on Amazon, no matter what country you live in, I suppose. And I do make signed copies available through the Something About the Beatles website. So there's that as well, if people are interested in that sort of thing. But um, I would tell you about my show is that I play a lot of archival stuff you will not hear anywhere else some unique mixes, some studio stuff, some just weird sort of underground sort of things I stumble upon. And I have some serious guests, including you two in upcoming shows I would love to have on the show because uh, you guys are my friends, you have unique insights, and it's like you find, you sort of cast the guests to the subject you want to tackle, you know. And so I've had authors, musicians, filmmakers, you know, you name it. And we just, there's no limit to the number of angles to, go after the Beatles and really try to explore their story in a truthful, insightful way. That's what the show is about. It may be utterly geek level stuff, but you know, you've been warned.
1: <laughs> well, it's um, absolutely fantastic. and, for uh, Beatle fans, it's just it's intriguing, and everyone enjoys learning more about it and going beyond just the typical information that you that you see. It's just um, it's it's highly entertaining. So I highly recommend that you check out Robert Rodriguez's books at Amazon and somethingaboutthebeatles.com. I am. Uh, looking forward to having you back on again hopefully very soon as well Robert and we um, are sadly out of time I did want to mention your your friend Ben rolling and uh, the, the gentleman from Joe Jackson's band uh, put together yeah. a had a fabulous fabulous performance at Monmouth and um, I greatly, greatly enjoyed that um, great experience. It was a super cool show that you guys put together. But um, well, thank you,
3: and Jack Petroselli from the Fab Fo.
1: That's right. And that's Keith. right. I could not mm-hmm. remember the name. <laughs> um, right. It was so great. It was so great. Well, sadly, well, we coming, are that. about that out of time. Oh, it was. It was. That was such a great. Um, conference uh everything about it was super so um thank you very much for taking time out of your out of your day to walk us down this magical path that winds through esher i am in love with the esher demos and i keep saying it's like Mm -hmm. crack cocaine if i would know that but um (laughs) it is highly addictive and um i truly appreciate jude and i truly, truly appreciate your expertise in guiding us this afternoon. So thank you so much, Robert.
3: It's always my pleasure and honor, and I'm not kidding. I can't wait to have you guys on the show down the road. And um, we'll talk, we'll run into each other at some point, and maybe we'll even get to hang out.
1: Oh, that'd be awesome. I would love that. We'll take care, and uh, we will see you soon.
0: All right. Take care.
1: guys, Jude and I, have a huge surprise for all of you, so grab your March calendars and get ready to write down this date and time. Drum roll, please. Thank you, because on Monday, March 11th at 4 p.m. Central, we are totally over the moon to have our She Said, She Said, hashtag eye candy guest, the one and only Mr. Elliot Easton of the 80s band the cars he was the lead guitarist for the band he is quite the beatles guru and we'll talk about how the beatles inspired him and served as his muse for many of the cars hit songs we'll play those songs and he'll break them down for us telling us stories that only an insider can tell so my 80s Friends, you do not want to miss this extremely exciting episode of She Said, She Said, March 11th at 4 p.m. Central. And next Tuesday, February 26th, if you are in the Evansville tri-state area, make it over to Willard Library. I am giving a presentation on the Easter demos. And it is going to be super, super fun. It is also going to be a celebration for the birthday of George Harrison. So we will have birthday cake, and it will all be too much, let me tell you. Um, I will be sharing the Easter Insights at 6.30. We have a meet and greet at six o'clock, and there are a lot of people signed up. So go to Willard Library's website and get registered. I can't wait to meet you all in person and uh, sign a copy of my cookbook. So uh, we have lost Jude working diligently. She probably had to get off and start working on the book. So uh, she is working on Volume 5 in the John Lennon series, which is going to be titled Shades of Life. And she will be speaking at the Eunice Louisiana Rotary on Monday, March 18th, about the Beatles' exhausting but incredible year of 1964, a year that she vividly features in Volume 4 of the John Lennon series, should have known better. If you live in Louisiana, Mississippi, southern Arkansas, or East Texas, ask Jude to speak at your group. Free of charge, she'll be there, and you will love it. I promise. So, until March Jude and I wish you food for thought, food for the soul, and food for the love of rock and roll.
0: Don't get the break like some of us do, better work it out, find where you've gone wrong.